Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. It is April, and our selection this month is Michael Bennett's detective novel, Better the Blood. It's about Hannah Westerman, a Maori police detective who's trying to find a serial killer before he gets to more victims. The killer, Poataraki, is on a mission to right the wrongs of colonialism in New Zealand. That's all I'm going to say for now, though this is... Is your spoiler warning. We are going to get into it today. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what happens, go listen to our spoiler free interview with Michael Bennett, which is in the feed. If you have read the book or you do want to know what happens, you are in the right place. And I am super excited to introduce you to this month's panelists. With us, we have Angeline Bully. She's the author of the YA novel, The Firekeeper's Daughter. She's also a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of the Chippewa Indians, also known as the Ojibwe. Angeline, welcome. Thank you for having me. We also have Steph Natuku, who writes books for kids in New Zealand. Her Maori tribal affiliations are Nati Tama, Nati Mutinga, and Tia Tiawa. Steph, welcome. Hi there. So I would love to jump in with a voicemail, actually, because we heard from Kirsty, who lives in Hamilton, New Zealand. Kia ora. Uh, that is hello from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I wanted to start my voice recording reading out the um, Whakatoki, the Māori proverb the book started with. Kia whakatou muri, te haere whakamua. I walk backwards into the future with my eyes fixed on my past. I love the shout out to our little corner of the world. Aroha mai. Hmm. I just thought that was lovely. And Steph, I would love to start with you since you also live in New Zealand. What did you think of the book? I loved it. I love Michael Bennett's <laughs> writing, you know. he You can tell he's a screenwriter when he does mm. his action, when he's writing action. He's very succinct and his sentences are very short and it gets you there. You know, it's very plotty and pacey and you can imagine that's just what he would do in his script. It was really fun just how easy to visualize everything was, for sure. Let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Jessie, who's also from New Zealand. I live in Tamaki, Makaurau, Auckland, and I'm a lawyer who's worked a bit with police. So this was all fairly close to home, and I loved this book. I could not put it down. I thought the pace of it was so compelling, and it felt very true to my experience of living in this city. I thought the way Michael played with the reader's sympathies was really cleverly done and so thought-provoking. I'm really excited to hear what Nudette listeners from all around the world thought of the book, especially if it was their introduction to Māori culture. I love what Jesse brought up about playing with reader's sympathies because I think especially in our antagonist character, there were a lot of really fascinating layers. I mean, for, for a good part of the book... I was kind of with him in terms of what he was saying and and the arguments he was making. Did you feel that way too, Steph? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> I think that's the best antagonist, though, isn't it? When you do right? find sympathy with them, like you can't have somebody who's just totally evil because then you're glad when they die. When they die, <laughs> but you know, I mean, spoilers. But um, <laughs> yeah, here we are. It's all good. Yeah, but um, I did have empathy, and I was thinking the whole way through. I was like, "Yep, yep, I can see why he did that." You know, right? Um, I guess he did evil things for a for a reason, and yeah. you know at least his deaths were all very quick. He didn't like torture them or anything. You know, that be... <laughs> That's amazing. You're right. He could have been worse. <laughs> could have been worse. But yeah, I felt he was really justified in what he did, you know, until we get to the end and he starts of sort of unraveling a bit, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah Angeline, what did you think of that theme? Cause you can really see that there's like a trajectory along which a lot of us are like, okay, okay, okay. I hear you. This makes, and then like, Oh wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I agree. I, you know, every villain believes they're the hero of their own story. Mm. And so, you know, I definitely had sympathies for him and, you know, reading about how brilliant uh, a student he was, how brilliant mm. an attorney. And then just that heartbreaking, um, you know, judgment uh, in the courts that just kind of turned his trajectory to this other path. Yeah, I was really uh, sympathetic. (laughs) Uh, And I could I could definitely understand so much of his motivation until again, (laughs) until he like, really veered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Let's listen to another voicemail we have, Liz in Minnesota. I could easily have assumed it was about a place in the United States that I didn't know the name of. Um, It is horrifying to me how similarly Indigenous people have been treated across the globe, how these issues remain, and how they are a theme that gets drawn into books because it is real lived experiences. So I'd also love to know, like, what New Zealand books I'm missing? Like, what else should I be reading? So we'll definitely get to New Zealand book recommendations, but I think that point around how similar colonialism looks around the world is a is a really interesting one, I think, especially from the point of view of an American reader. I did not know much about Indigenous New Zealand history, and I wish I were more surprised to see the similarities between what happened there and what happened here. Angela, and I'd love to know from your point of view, did that strike you too? I assume you weren't surprised. No, no, I was not. Um, I was not surprised. Um, one of the things I really wanted to um, point out was the concept of land ownership. When he is talking to the university student about, you know, and her family had purchased land and it was like the best land. And he, you know, tells her that there wasn't a concept of land ownership. It was of like land sharing. And so Mm -hmm. what the family had purchased was the right to share in, but not to own. And in Michigan, we had um, a graduate student in the 1970s uh, had filed a lawsuit against the university of Ann Arbor uh, for saying that um, they were in violation of the treaty of Fort Meigs. And with that, uh, the tribes in Michigan had had gifted land to um, the state of Michigan, and it was to be used for education. And um, and at the crux of this lawsuit was that 
that meant that Native students should be receiving a free education from this institution. And the uh, state's expert had said, no, it was given outright as a gift. Mm. And uh, the ruling went against um, what the tribes had uh, said that they, you know, were fighting for was the court did not recognize the Ojibwe and Potawatomi and Odawa uh, concept of like a reciprocal. It it was not just gifted out of the goodness of their heart. It was gifted in exchange for something. And, you know, just thinking about that because of the same thing with this lawsuit that he argued in and, and seeing the parallels with what my tribe and other tribes in Michigan had gone through. That's really interesting. And it also reminds me of the concept of Utu that comes up throughout the book. Right. That whole balance. That's really interesting. Let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Allie in Mississippi. I just finished reading Bed of the Blood and it really surprised me. I even recently had a job interview and they asked me what was the last book I read for fun and I just gushed forever about this book. I don't normally read much detective fiction, but the way this book handles generational trauma, the history of colonialism, and the problems of policing is so thoughtful and smart. Uh, Maybe it's outdated by now, but this book made me think about the traditional divide between like literary fiction, I'm doing quotation marks with my hands, and genre fiction and how genres like this are often underappreciated or seen as less um, serious. Um, But this book just goes to show that the tropes and expectations of genre can be used to, to offer really powerful political Uh, goals and visions and hope for the future. I loved that. Also, we did follow up with Allie and she hasn't gotten the job yet, but she's still doing interviews. So Allie, our fingers are crossed for you. Um, I love that question around genre, though. Um, Angeline, are you normally like a detective fiction reader? Is that something you enjoy? I prefer like psychological thrillers. Um, But I really enjoyed the character. Um, Hannah, I just, I, she was so well developed and I loved how immediately you get this sense of this um, quiet leadership that felt very familiar, Mm -hmm. just that with a word, you know, uh, when she um, is at the the police station with her daughter and, and her daughter's father and, and the daughter is still spiraling or spinning and Mm -hmm. uh, Hannah just says, okay and <laughs> then uh kisses her forehead and the daughter like collapses against her and it's kind of that that safe harbor of that her mother provides of not saying a lot but what she does say you 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 know that's what her daughter she knew exactly what her daughter needed yeah that's a really good point i liked her a lot too and i think to your point i think Often with books like this, you end up with a detective who ends up into deep, but is also like kind of fundamentally broken in stories like this often, where she is like neglecting her family in some way or, you know, has a drinking problem or something kind of along those lines. I like that. I think this book played really well with tropes, but didn't, but also kind of subverted them just enough in really interesting ways. So, yeah, Steph, do you read detective novels very often? 
Um, I read everything very often. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the reason that I picked up Better the Blood is because it was nominated at the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, which is one of New Zealand's, oh, it is New Zealand's, most prestigious literary awards that mm. pays out the most money to the winners <laughs> and I always try and grab you know I always try and read at least a couple of the finalists and I grabbed Better the Blood because it was there at my local bookshop didn't know anything about it started reading and I was like hold on this is a crime novel this is like a police <laughs> Cathedral, why is it being nominated at a literary book award because you think <laughs> of you think of literary fiction as you know, people having deep thoughts and gazing at their <laughs> belly buttons and feeling <laughs> feeling sad. But this was really plotty and it was a genre book nominated for a literary award, which just goes mm. to show how amazing the writing was. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Totally. I really enjoyed it. I re- and it hit every point for a crime fiction novel. You know, right. you've got, you've got the the antagonist that you can empathize with you've got the protagonist who you really are rooting for you've got pace and drama got everything yeah you've got the kid who gets a little more involved than she should like there were so many fun tropes in it but yeah I think to your point there is it is both like it's so plotty it's very easy to devour but I love that there's so much substance to it too because I think it ends up feeling like, you know, a, definitely a much more enriching experience than a lot of these sorts of books can, you know, some it's often for me like, oh, I just ate a bag of Cheetos is how reading one of these feels, you know, as opposed to like, oh, this was a really good salad with bacon on it or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a Maori person living in New Zealand, like there's nothing new under the sun in this book. We've got systemic racism and police. Mm-hmm. And in the justice system, we've got um, historical grievances which need to be addressed, which haven't been addressed. We've got all these things. But um, when I was when I was little, and I talk about this a lot, there weren't a lot of New Zealand children's books around, and there mm. were very few with Maori protagonists, and even fewer with female Maori protagonists. And so I read a lot of UK fiction, you know, I had a diet of Enid Blyton and Beverly Cleary and, mm. and, and um, you know, and, and things that weren't relevant to me, like Christmas in the wintertime. Who, who's heard of that? That's just crazy. You know, Christmas is supposed to be hot and raining, <laughs> you know, and when you grow up on a diet of books that aren't about you, you begin to feel that you're not really worthy of being written about. So it is so lovely to see this Māori renaissance in literature now. We've got so many amazing Māori books out there and, you know, with amazing Māori writers. And it's so great to see. I really, really love it. Absolutely. I I speak about it a lot. Um, I was 18 years old or I was a senior in high school before I ever read a story that featured a Native American main character. And when I did find that story, um, it was written by someone who was not Native. And, you know, oh. there were some some uh, inaccurate representations, some, uh, you know, stereotypes and, you know, the beautiful uh, Indian maiden. And mm. it was so not satisfying. And so I, I think that really shaped me wanting to write this story and, and provide something for my, my daughter and for our students, um, mm. something that I felt accurately portrayed 
a teen in, in my tribal community. Yeah, that makes sense. So Steph, that reminds me of a question I had for you, which, you know, when I interviewed Michael, he talked about how a lot of people in his generation weren't taught Te Reo very well. And but his kids, you know, they were like in a fully immersive school. And I was curious what your own relationship is to the language. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, when my father was at school, the mm-hmm. language was whipped out of him. They weren't right. allowed to. Like literally. Him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's just colonization in action, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? And mm-hmm. um, so when you've got a generation who has lost the language and then they don't teach it to their children and then it's it's gone, you know? So we've got this huge renaissance of te reo Māori, of the Māori language going on at the moment, and it is being taught in schools a lot more. So, you know, huge renaissance mm. going on. There's more people learning the language than there ever has been before, and it's wonderful to see, but it's such it's such a struggle to get it back. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, yeah. Once, once it's lost, it's, it's only because of these really few tenacious, wonderful people that managed to hold on to it and to, and to teach it on. So um, yeah, we're dealing with that at the moment. The only thing that I was surprised by was the footnotes. Oh, really? Yeah, because I have a lot of um, Māori friends who are writers, and a lot of us, myself included, don't bother translating the Māori words that we sprinkle in because we figure, oh, well, you can Google it. You know what I mean? Like, it's... <laughs> But I was really surprised to see footnotes. I'd, I hadn't seen that before. I, but I suppose it makes the, the reading of it more accessible to overseas readers and for people who don't speak the language, who don't want to have to flip to a glossary, do you know, which breaks up the sort of the rhythm of the reading. Yeah, I do think a glossary can be tricky. And now, Angeline, help me remember. So I listened to this book many months ago now, and I don't remember not knowing the words, but I also like there weren't footnotes in the audio. Did they just read the words? They did not include the footnotes in the Uh, in the the narration it was just yeah the straightforward narration um, minus any footnotes it's wild how much you can pick up on just in context with that absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely i agree it's really cool what's going to happen in book two of the hana westerman novels we're going to talk about it right after the break nerdette is supported by the sympathizer podcast from hbo Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So let's listen to another voicemail. We have a Sako from Sydney. I want to send a quick note to say I am usually very skeptical of books that center, quote, good police. Um, but I actually really did like Hannah in this one, and I thought it was done in a very nuanced way that worked well. And at the end of the book, when she quits the police force, um, I don't know, I think it, it came to a head very well. 
and it makes me very interested in how the second book could go and the rest of the series. So, yeah, what do you think is going to happen in the second book? Steph, have you thought about this? You think she's just going to go back to the force? No, she'll be a vigilante. She'll be a <laughs> she'll be a private investigatory person. And that was she will, kind of what I was thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. She'll be a force unto her unto herself. Yes, definitely. I think she's going to do better with fewer procedural uh, <laughs> things. Whole, you know, constraining <laughs> her. Yes, and and from a writing point of view, it must be heaps less research. You know, if you're writing a police thing, then you have to do all the research about the police and all the rules <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Whereas if you're a private investigator, you can just go wild, man. You can do anything. <laughs> I, I speak as a writer who hates doing research. So. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So uh, Ali from Mississippi actually had another really interesting point that we wanted to listen to as well. And it was about the depiction of Hannah's daughter, Addison. Oh, also, I just want to add that I really enjoyed the main character's daughter and friends. Um, it was just really cool to see this younger generation represented in a really like c- celebratory way in the ways that they're choosing to resist and to demand a better future and um, hold uh, people from the past accountable. I just thought that that was a really, really cool character development. And I I really enjoyed reading those characters. I loved that point, too. And I think it speaks to something that both of you have at least sort of hinted at, which is the idea of really having hope for future generations and and what how they'll be able to connect with their heritage in ways that may not have happened in the past. There's a proverb in Maori, and I'm not sure if I've got it quite right, but it's something like, um, you know, the old net is done, the new net goes fishing, which is Mm. all about youth and um rising up you know they are our future what kind of world are we leaving them of course they're Mm -hmm. going to be angry about it of course they want um things to happen it's their future you know we have teachings about the seventh generation that will lead the way back to Mm -hmm. culture and community that's so interesting angeline the seventh generation seventh from when well the teachings that i have is that Whenever you make a decision, you are supposed to Mm. think seven generations ahead because they're going to live with the consequences or repercussions or impact, the ripple of whatever decisions we make today. Um, And so then we also think like how um, we are, we were the seventh generation to our ancestors, you know, and the ones that negotiated treaties like they were thinking of us and, um, you know, and, and so that's, um, so yeah, it's like seventh generation from, well, you can go backwards and you, and you can go forwards. And I think that's the full circleness of it. It's so beautiful. It's such a different conception of time from Western constructs. And it's just, I mean, I think about, you know, most politicians here in the U S aren't thinking past their next term in office, you know, it's so frustrating. (laughs) So before I let each of you go, I would love to talk about some book recommendations. And the way we do this normally is saying, you know, this could be vibe, this could be topic, this could be setting, this could be genre, like really anything that you think, you know, if someone liked Better the Blood, they probably would like this for whatever reason. 
Um, I would love to hear what you think. And Angela, and I have to say the first book that comes to mind for me is definitely The Firekeeper's Daughter, because I think it is just such a such a fascinating look at similar themes. So I'm going to recommend that one so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Angeline, let's start with you. Do you have any recommendations for other books that you think speak to this one in whatever way that you think people might like? Yes, I do. Um, so Marcy Rendon, uh, mm-hmm. she is White Earth uh, Ojibwe, and she uh, writes, she has a mystery series. It's adult, but I would not hesitate to uh, recommend the story to any high school student as well. Cool. And um, it's uh, the first book is called Murder on the Red River. It's set in the 1970s. She's kind of a, a unofficial sidekick uh, helping out a sheriff. And um, it, just the way that it weaves culture and her story. And I gave the book to my dad and my dad's Ojibwe. And um, and he said that Marcy Rendon writes the way um, Ojibwe people see the world. And the way that she describes things, uh, you feel like you are right there in that setting. It is just a wonderful insight into Ojibwe frame of mind, I think. That's a lovely recommendation. I can't wait to read those. Steph, what do you think? Well, I have a book to recommend for those of you who are interested in Maori history and Good. stuff. Yes. So this is by Witty Ihimaira. Now Witty is one of the most amazing Maori writers in New Zealand. He was the first one to publish a Maori novel, which was only back in like, I don't know, the seventies or something like mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. um he has written a book called Navigating the Stars and it's all about Maori creation myths. Because oh, our cool. history is so tied up with our gods and our and our mythology. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful hardback book. So many stories, lots of these photographs in it. There's, um, it's, it's a really, really beautiful book. And if you're interested in Maori culture, this will give you a really good grounding as to where we're coming from and what we're all about. Thanks to both of you again for taking the time to read this book and for coming on the show. I really appreciate both of you and and the the perspectives you brought to this conversation. Thank you. It was nice being here. Well, thank you for the invitation. that's it for april book club thank you so much for listening along i wanted to let you know that angeline has another ya novel coming out in like a week it is called warrior girl unearthed so be sure to check that out as well of course a big thank you to kirsty jesse liz ali and asako for calling in with your thoughts this month we always appreciate hearing your input on our book club selections next month's book is take what you need it's by idra novi it's a shorty it's so good it's about an appalachian sculptor chosen family and shifting cultural perspectives in the united states it's great you should read it also our June pick is The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi, which is a very fun historical fantasy novel about a lady pirate. I'm pretty sure that's all you need to know. It's by Shannon Chakraborty. 
We'll be back on Tuesday with an interview with Idra. And of course, in the meantime, if you want to talk about books, a great place to do that is in our Facebook group. It's called Nerdette Headquarters. There are a thousand Nerdette listeners in there just hanging out, ready to chat. So you can head over there and join us if you like. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdette HQ. We also post a lot of book stuff on Instagram. We're at Nerdette Podcast there. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman and J.P. Swenson builds our newsletter and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.